going to be in the book of First Peter this morning, book of First Peter. That first verse of that last song, I love you, Lord, oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, I will sing of the goodness of God. I love you, Lord, oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hands. I'm going to put this back before I get in trouble. But that, that verse right there, just a little bit. Just to gather together and to sing just those couple of lines, to corporately confess that truth, that's worth being here this morning. To be able to, to look at one another and to say that that is true, that his mercy never fails. Because here's the thing, somebody out here is, is asking that question right now and saying, God, I don't know if you have failed me right now because it's dark and I'm really lost here. I'm really confused. But somebody else out here can say that with utter truth and, and with complete experience to know, no, I've been there too, and I'm going to tell you now, his mercy never fails. That's what church is for. This is why we gather together, to be able to proclaim the truth about God, to glorify him in that, and then to be able to look at one another and say, you may not feel that this is true right now, but let me tell you, it is true, and, I, and let, let me explain to you why it's true. Let me, let, let, me, let, me, let me make that happen. Let me, let me help you understand something that you may be incapable of believing at the moment, but I can tell you it's true. It's worth coming for that. I could be done right now. We could walk away with that message, and it would have been worth you being here this morning. But I'm not going to do that. Y'all are going to have to sit here for 45 more minutes. Y'all are going to have to listen uh, to a little bit more of what I've got to say. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, as you guys are, are, are getting set up there, uh, I wonder if any of you guys have ever gone to a movie, you watched a movie at home, and you've walked out, and, and you just kind of looked at the person you went with, and you said, I have no idea what I just watched. I have no clue what just happened in that movie. I am so confused right now. Or, or maybe you've seen a movie, thought you understood it, and then when you heard somebody else talk about it, like you start a conversation uh, at, at work a few days later, and you're like... I don't know that we watched the same movie because you got a lot out of that and I kind of thought it was just fun. Like, I, I'm not sure that we saw the same, uh, the same thing. Uh, I was like that with, with a movie, uh, the, the movie Inception. I don't know if y'all have seen that movie or not. Uh, that movie is notorious for being confusing. It's about a guy who works in dreams uh, and the movie is a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream. And if that sounds complicated, that's because it is. It's really confusing whenever you watch it. But I remember watching it, getting done with it, and thinking, oh yeah, I got that. I think I understood that. Emily was like, uh, I was entertained, but I'm not sure exactly what just happened. But I, I was entertained, so it was a good movie. It was fine. But then I watched it again uh, like several years later, and I was like, you know what? I don't think I understood this at all the first time that I watched this. Because I think I see where they were going with some things, and I missed that totally the first go around. And that makes the rest of the movie make a lot more sense. Um, the passage today that we're going to look at, it's kind of like that. It's uber confusing. It's really complicated passage. 
Now, it has a great message that we can pull out of it, and we can back away from the details far enough that we can understand some of these things. But uh, if you get too bogged down in the details of today's passage, and normally I would not say this, because I, I think the, the better way is for us to pull out the details, because God is even in the little prepositions in the way that he explains the way that he works. But this one, it's confusing. It's, it's hard, and I, fe- and I fear if we get too lost in the details, you'll never find your way back out of uh, this maze. Martin Luther, none other than the Martin Luther, said, uh, said this about today's passage. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty what Peter means. So that's what you got to look forward to this morning. So put, you have to put on your thinking caps just a little bit. And don't misunderstand me, though. I still think it's worth our study and, and more than worth our time this morning to work through some of this. It's still God's Word. Uh, but we also have to acknowledge that if we're going to study letters written in different languages to cultures that live differently and, uh, and, and thought differently than we did, uh, and we can't go back and ask the authors to say, what exactly did you mean by this? We should anticipate that at some point we're going to run up against some of this kind of stuff where it's just hard to parse out some of these problems and hard to understand exactly what is going on. So let's do a little work here this morning, uh, and and we're going to work through uh, this passage, and I think we'll have a lot that we can take from it. So uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter 3, the end of chapter 3, but in chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 3, Peter was working through the household codes, and he was talking about how you live uh, as a persecuted people and how you live as, uh, as people who were the, the least powerful in society, and people over you may not hold your convictions, in fact, may persecute you for your convictions uh, as a Christian. And so Peter has been walking through all of that, and then he starts giving some pretty practical advice to us uh, in in verses uh, 16 and 17. Uh, So in 16 and 17, he says, Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Practical stuff. Super simple. Don't do bad stuff. Be a good person. Make sure that if you suffer, it's for the good that you do, not because you actually deserve it. Now, that seems like a simple point, but honestly, 95% of people that call themselves on Christian, or that call themselves Christians on social media today could use this note. A lot of times people are like, I'm so persecuted, and it's like, no, people just don't like you because you're a jerk. You're not persecuted. You're just not a nice person, uh, and that's why people don't like you. It's not because necessarily of what you believe. It's because of how you talk to people about what you believe, um, and, and, and so there's, and I'll, and I'll tell you this, right, I'll tell you this too. This applies to parenting, and this applies to marriage as well. Make sure that you're not giving people ample reason to be mad at you because you're treating them terribly. Be kind. Be kind people. Make sure that if people are angry with you, that it's, it's something in them, not because of something that you have done. Don't be a jerk. I honestly think a lot of Christian persecution would evaporate if Christians would just be kind to people. Just be kind. But let's keep reading. Uh, uh, if indeed you aren't a jerk and people do legitimately just hate you because of your faith in Jesus, here is Peter's advice. Simple, clear, concise. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, 
when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Clear as day. That's all that you have to do. If people really hate you, you just have to do what Peter says here, which is really confusing. Uh, and I think it's funny, if you go to Second Peter in chapter 3, he talks about how hard it is to understand Paul whenever Paul writes letters. And I'm like, Peter, man, this is, this is you too. This is hard. He's got some doozies, and I think this is chief among them. So let's, let's just walk through these verses and see if we can't parse out a little bit of what Peter is trying to teach us. So first, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So this is one of the clearest articulations of the gospel in all of Scripture. This is, again, this is worth the price of admission this morning, which is free. This is worth coming in here this morning and seeing this and hearing this and saying, this is what our faith is about. Christ suffered the righteous. Christ suffers for the unrighteous, us. Peter has just said it's better to suffer for doing good than doing evil. He then brings up Jesus as the perfect example of just that. He is the model. He is the one that shows us what this looks like and how to do it. Because he, the righteous one, might bring us, the unrighteous ones, before God. He was then killed and he was raised in the Spirit. Simple enough, beautiful, beautiful passage. It is the most glorious truth in the world, and Peter articulates it for us so well right here. Now let's not get too lost in the difficult parts of this passage that we overlook the obvious and clear parts of this passage that we can write on our hearts and that we can celebrate and that we can sing about. Jesus is righteous, has done no wrong, Yet he suffers in our place that we might be brought to God. Not brought before God, but brought to God. Reconciled to God. Don't ever lose sight of that. When you lose sight of that, you lose sight of Christianity. That is center, core of our faith. And that doesn't matter how nice you are. you got to hang on to that one. But let's keep going. 19 and 20. And then it says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. This is where it gets so confusing. Now, you guys have probably heard all kinds of different teachings on this verse if you've been around church in your life. What, what is Peter talking about here? There's, there's really no other passages like this in the New Testament where this type of wording is used in this way. What spirits is he talking about? What prison? Obey how? He went there? He went where? To who? How did he do it? When did he go there? Peter doesn't answer any of those questions that are brought out by this passage. He doesn't answer any of them. He assumes we know what he's talking about. And my guess is the people he's writing to probably knew what he was talking about. But we, it is really hard for us to parse that out and follow Peter's logic here. We simply don't have the answers to know everything that he had in mind. Now, there are probably somewhere between five to eight 
depending on how you answer some of these questions, kind of variations off of these different themes, probably five to eight readings uh, of this passage that answer all those questions in some uh, sort of way. Um, and it's gonna, it's totally impossible for us to walk through all of that. It's not my intention to bog you, like I said, bog you down in the details of this. Uh, but here's, here's what I'm going to do. I, I can't tell you for sure what Peter is saying here. Uh, anything that I tell you will be a guess, but I'm going to take a, a stab at it, and I'm going to lay out kind of four of the theories, and they're even too, even the theories themselves are too complicated for me to put on the screen. So you're just going to have to listen. Uh, and so I'm going to take a stab at it, and I'll let you do the work. Uh, of, of trying to, 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 to work through this and figure out what you think Peter is saying, and you can make your own assessment. So, first possible interpretation. Peter is trying to draw out the idea of this persecuted minority. Noah is representative of that. That's who he's writing to, is a persecuted uh, minority that remains righteous while others receive judgment. So this, this parallels Noah. Others receive judgment, the, the, the persecuted minority remain righteous. And then in the Spirit, when it talks about that, refers uh, to the way in which those in the days of Noah heard the call to faith, and yet they rejected that call to faith. And instead were convinced that they could handle it themselves. Hence, they were in prison. They were in bondage. They could not hear because they were in bondage. Peter then goes on to point out how Noah and his family, a persecuted minority, are saved amidst the the judgment of God through the ark. So that's one potential understanding of it and a dozen nuances off of that 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 you you could work with. The second one, and this carries with it some weight, is that Jesus, upon his death, goes to the location of fallen angels. This is what is meant by spirits in prison. Uh, which this, this works if you jive with a couple of other texts in the New Testament, you can make this happen. So Peter goes to the location of fallen angels and announces what it says basically in verse 22, that Jesus is king. Again, if I get too lost in these details, y'all are going to check out on me. So I'm going to leave it at that. But that's basically what, he, what he's doing. He's going and he's finding these fallen angels and he's basically saying, here I am, I am superior over you, I am king. Number three, Jesus goes to hell after his death, and before his resurrection, uh, he, he goes to the, the spirits in prison, and in this view, the spirits in prison would be those in hell, uh, which, did, which in Noah's day did not respond well, and that he basically preaches to them and gives them a second chance to respond to the gospel. Now, out of these views, this is probably the most common one that you've heard. It's also the most problematic one because it runs up against all kinds of Scripture that says that's not how that works. Um, So it is a view that's out there, and if I had to say one that's like this one is not one that that you're going to be able to hang on to, I would say this one, you're going to have to deal with a lot of other texts in Scripture that say that's not what Peter is saying here at all. But it's one of those uh, that is out there, Uh, and I would say that that one is off the table. Now, the fourth one, and I would say this is my view simply because, honestly, I think it's the simplest. uh, And given multiple choices, the simplest is usually the right one. The view of the righteous remnant still seen. So still this idea of the righteous remnant following with the theme of the text that he's been writing in. But the proclaiming uh, to the Spirit is effectively Jesus announcing his arrival and and, and preeminence to those that would not hear. Even those that would not hear 
from Noah's day. So proclaiming is not preaching. Some of your all's uh, translations may say preaching there. But this is not preaching in view of drawing converts. This is a proclamation where Jesus shows up and he says, Here I am. I'm the king. I'm the one that you've rejected. And so he proclaims to the spirits in prison, I'm the one that you rejected, even back in the days of Noah. I think that's probably what's going on here, but if I found it, you know, I get to heaven one day and I, and I ask God, I think, and he's like, no, y'all, none of those are right. I'd be like, eh, figures. So, uh, but that's what I think is, is happening. I don't know which is right, if, if any. But almost everyone agrees that no matter what interpretation you pull out of these, this language of preaching to spirits in prison and, uh, and, and what exactly Jesus did and when he did it and all that kind of stuff, everybody comes back to verse 22. Everybody comes back to verse 22, and that that is the main point that Peter wants us to take from it, kind of the thesis of this paragraph here, that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So wherever Peter's going in this paragraph, talking about this other stuff, that's the goal. That's what he wants us to see. That the end place where he, where he is at is rightfully exalted at the right hand of the Father. So in this paragraph, Peter draws a straight line from the suffering of Jesus at the beginning through the salvation that he brings to his ultimate glorification. Now, how is it that he brings about some of this and what are some of these announcements being made? We're not exactly sure, but we can follow this through line either way. Suffering of Jesus the salvation he brings to his ultimate glorification. Peter is showing us the pathway that Jesus has modeled for us to follow. First comes suffering, then comes the waters of judgment in which we will all put ourselves in some sort of figurative arc if we are to find salvation. So, so, so follow with me here. Suffering and then judgment and salvation. Those go together, right? And we find ourselves in some sort of figurative arc. This is what he's talking about when he talks about that we are saved through the waters. We are saved by the water in the ark. He's talking about Noah and all this different stuff that's there. Um, So he says, first comes suffering, then comes the waters of judgment, which we all find ourselves in some sort of figurative arc uh, where we will find our salvation. The question becomes, what... The question, the question becomes is whenever you put yourself in this figurative arc, so this is going to be a metaphor within a metaphor that he's about to use here, all right? See, I told you it's, it's, it's confusing. It's a metaphor within a metaphor. And, and what he says is when you put yourself in this arc, will that arc protect you? Will that arc be your salvation? Now, Peter ties the arc of, uh, of Noah to baptism for us. So he, he draws this parallel between the two. He says the same way that Noah hid himself in the ark is the same way we now are to hide ourselves in baptism. Now, we talked about this back in the summer just a little bit. This is not saying that baptism itself saves us because baptism itself is a metaphor for us. So again, metaphor within a metaphor. So you got to follow me here, right? What is baptism a metaphor for? The death, burial, 
and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the picture. Buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life forever. Under the water, into the grave, pulled out of the grave. Resurrected with new life. So the first metaphor is the ark. The ark corresponds to baptism. Baptism corresponds to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You following that? You following that, that pattern there, how that works? So this is what uh, Peter is trying to, to, to do. And so he, he says, if you can, if you can I'm telling you, if you can follow this, it's beautiful. So suffering, judgment, and then if you are saved through that judgment, what follows is exaltation. That's the pattern set for us by Jesus. Suffering, judgment, resurrection, exaltation. That's the pattern. But here's the deal. You can't get off the pattern. You can't miss any of the steps. We do not avoid suffering. The suffering is the path to exaltation. We cannot skip the ark. It has our protection to take us to our ultimate exaltation. We cannot substitute the ark. It is the only protection for our ultimate exaltation. Peter is using this as an analogy and our age is no different than the age of Noah. So stay with me how this works. They wanted to skip the suffering too in Noah's day. When Noah said, look out, there's a flood coming. That's why I'm building this crazy boat. They said, Noah, you're crazy. Suffering is not coming our way. We're going to deal with the chaos around us. And we'll make it through. No, no suffering for us. They didn't know the suffering that was coming, and they didn't listen to Noah when he warned. They did not believe they needed salvation. Do you see that? They didn't believe that they needed it because they hadn't had the suffering. As far as they could tell, they had no need for an ark. They pursued their own life, their own goal, their own glory, their own way. And in doing so, they forfeited their only hope. Can you imagine the day that the rain started to fall? And the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And at some point, somewhere in this process, people started to realize that they had made a bad miscalculation. That indeed suffering was coming. And salvation was desperately needed. They needed an ark. Friends, apart from Jesus, you will experience that same moment. Either in this life or the next. And the only hope for your salvation in that moment will be what, what, what Peter ties from the ark to baptism to Jesus. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All those things are just a pointer for us. The Old Testament story, do you remember we talked about type and anti-type? We talked about how that works together. The, the, the story of Noah is a type, it's a shadow, it's a pointer, it's a picture that later is replaced by baptism. And what is baptism? It's a shadow. It's a pointer. It's a representation of what Christ has done. We cannot persevere apart from an ark to save us. We need Jesus' death and resurrection the same way Noah needed an ark. Suffering will come. It, the ark will be our salvation on that day. 
So the question I have for you is today, will you hear the call that the people of Noah rejected, the people of Noah's day rejected? The day of trouble will come. Will you find yourself in the ark? Or will you find yourself grasping for something else? Can you imagine on about day 15 of the rain, day 16 of the rain, the water starts to rise, houses are swept away, landslides are happening all over the place. Can you imagine how frantic the building of boats would have been all around town? Everybody would have been trying to find something to make it a boat. We said, I can't get on that big boat there. I don't have, I, I, I can't get there because I rejected that one. I've got to find my own. And so they would be tearing apart their, house, their houses to build a boat. A door would float by and they'd try to jump on the door. A piece of driftwood would, 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 would float by and they'd try to put themselves on the piece of driftwood. Anything that would float, they would try to throw themselves on it in hope of finding some salvation. And so it goes with us. We will find anything to latch on to if it gives us meaning. If we can find meaning today in this time, and we look to find ultimate meaning in our, in our, in our jobs, in our, in our families, in our education, in our things, in our money, in our bank accounts, we latch on to all these things if they, as if they are our means to stay afloat. in a world that is, as a result of sin, full of suffering and set against us. Just like the world that Peter is writing to, suffering is inevitable. The question is, where will you turn when the rain begins to fall? Will you run to the ark, a.k.a. Jesus' death and resurrection? Or will you grasp onto anything that might hold you up? This is Peter's point for us. Peter is zeroing in on this desperate need of baptism in our lives. Again, it's not the baptism that saves us. It's just a metaphor. Peter, Peter says we're not talking about the removal of dirt from the body. We're talking about what Jesus Christ has done. The joy of baptism is in the depth of the darkness that it teaches. Yes, the darkness that it teaches. As Peter describes the, the, the flood and how few were saved in that day, the point that he's making is that it is a dark place of judgment. And he says that baptism is our lifeboat in the midst of total destruction and desolation. And I wonder how many of you, we talked about this this summer. Some of this I'm pulling straight from my, 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 my sermon this summer. I wonder how many of you view baptism that way. As a rescue from destruction and desolation. A lifeboat in the midst of chaos and destruction. Peter did. I know I didn't see baptism that way when I got baptized. I thought it was just something you're supposed to do. But Peter saw this analogy and he says, this is what's happening in your baptism. And Peter sees baptism because he, this way because he understands what is coming. He understands the coming judgment that is, that is there for us apart from Christ. He understands that the waters will rise, the suffering will come. 
And he knows that apart from some saving instrument, we are just like those people off the ark marked for destruction. Listen, if you grasp what Peter is trying to tell us here, you'll be prepared for that day when the rain begins to fall. And make no misunderstanding, Peter is trying to prepare all of us for suffering. He's trying to prepare us to die. We don't talk about that enough. But he's trying to prepare us for that day. And he wants to make sure that you don't miss out on what the purpose of suffering is. In a broken world, suffering is inevitable. It will come. The question is, will the suffering drive you to the ark and make you run to the ark, to the place of salvation? Or will you miss the sanctifying nature of suffering and simply just endure? Peter's warning is prepare your hearts now. Don't wait for the rain. I had planned to kind of keep going through the first part of chapter 4, but I'm going to hold off on that for, for last week. But I want you to see Peter's, what Peter's driving at here. You see, I think this is the difference that we miss out so, so much in Christianity. What sets us apart, and I've said this before, what sets apart Christianity is that suffering is not meaningless. It has a purpose. And you say, well, that sounds so cruel. Why would God give purpose to suffering? That sounds like a, a cruel, sadistic God. No, what a cruel, sadistic God would do is he would just give you suffering for the purpose of suffering. And there would be no lesson to be learned from it, no sanctification that happens from it. It would just exist for the purpose of existing. There would be no redeeming value to it. That would be a cruel and sadistic God. Instead, what he has said is there is suffering in this world. It is broken and it is inevitable. So what I will do is I will redeem that suffering for you. But only if you, lean, if you come to me for salvation and come to the ark, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for, for, uh, for, for salvation. If you reach for this other stuff that's floating by, you will have missed the point. I just want to step back a little bit and see what Peter has done here in these first few chapters. Going all the way back to, to, to chapter 1. So if you've got your, your Bibles open to 1 Peter, you can just turn back to chapter 1. I'm going to go through a few different texts here. I want you to see what he is doing. He is writing so that those exiles that are about to be persecuted, he knows it's coming, he is writing that they would be safe. Or he's not writing so much that they would be safe. He's writing that they would be holy. That is a far bigger goal for him. Side note, we should be praying that God would make us holy far more than we are praying that he would make us safe. But I'd bet my house that 100% of us in here, every single one of us in here, pray for protection far more than we pray for sanctification, and it's not even close. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for protection. He, he, he offers us some protection. What I'm saying is we, 
we value the wrong thing. We place the highest value on the wrong thing so often. Anyway, Peter wants us to be holy. And then he, then he gives the context for the sanctification. So chapter 1, he, he wants, tells us he wants us to be holy. That's the end of chapter 1. And then he gives the context for the sanctification. This is the beginning of chapter 2. The spiritual house of the church body. Following that, he begins to lay out how holiness plays out in specific contexts. In the home, in our relationships, in politics, in society. This is the pattern. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. And at each and every one of these stages, Peter does something very strategic. He roots all of it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of it. He is radically Christocentric. Fully devoted. Now, he also talks about the Trinity probably as, as much or more as any author in Scripture. But he keeps going back to Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. This is talking about holiness here. He says, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So he's talking about holiness, and he says, with the precious blood of Christ. So he grounds our holiness, not in our actions, but in the blood of Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 4, As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. So he's talking about the spiritual body, the church. And what does he say? You come to Christ. He is the, the, the cornerstone and the architect. The church is not just a gathering. It is built on Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 through 24. I think I've read this almost every week that we've been in 1 Peter. For this you have been called. So working through the details of what it means to be a Christian in a world set against you, he says this. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So all of this stuff, he died that we might live. All of it. It's all centered on Christ with implications for us. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered. This is what we just read. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So salvation comes to us through Christ. Again, Peter going back to Jesus, back to Jesus, back to Jesus, over and over and over again. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. We'll talk about this next week. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves. Why? Since Christ suffered in the flesh. Back to Jesus. Like he, it's just over and over and over again. He keeps going back to Jesus. Why does he do all this? And what does he keep saying about Jesus? He keeps talking about how Jesus suffered, how he died, how he was, uh, how he was righteous for the unrighteous. He just keeps talking about how Jesus suffered. He's laboring to show us at every step the reason we do these things is because we have learned them from Jesus. He is our model. He is our, our example. Peter is radically, unapologetically centered on Jesus. Every step, he says to us, in effect, this is a game of follow the leader, and you don't get to miss a step. You miss a step, you're out. You don't get to miss a step. You fall out of line, and you'll miss the way all this works. 
You follow the leader. Exile, suffer, judgment, resurrection, glorification. That's the pattern set for us by Jesus. Exile. He was an exile, a voluntary exile. He left heaven, came to earth. Getting ready to, getting ready to head into Christmas season. This is what we're going to be talking about. Left heaven, came to earth, came to earth, a voluntary exile. Made human, literally humiliated for us. An exile from his home. He suffered and died on our behalf. The righteous for the unrighteous. Peter tells us, don't suffer for doing evil, but suffer for your commitment to Christ. Suffer for doing good, just like Jesus. Following this, we will be judged for our lives here on earth. We cannot escape the suffering, nor can we escape the judgment. The question is, will you have shelter during the judgment? Will you have an ark? Jesus had no ark. He took the wrath. He took the judgment. He took the full weight of sin, the brunt of the wrath of the Father. There was no shelter. Why? So that we would not. So that we would have the ark, we would have baptism, we would have the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to hide ourselves in. So do we experience the judgment? Yes. But when we hide ourselves behind Christ and in Christ, he takes that, the righteous for the unrighteous. Follow the leader. The waters of judgment cannot harm us because we have our ark of salvation. And then finally, we see the glorification of the risen Jesus. Now with the Father, this is verse 22 of chapter 3, now with the Father reigning back home, no longer in exile. Friends, we are not home yet, but Jesus shows us how to get there. Let's follow the leader. It starts with following him to the cross. Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says in, in the book of John that a servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Let's follow the leader. But then we follow him into baptism and death. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. Follow the leader. But then the rest of it is we also follow him in resurrection. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You were raised with him and the Father raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of, of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. Follow the leader. But you can't miss a step. It all works together. It really is that simple. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning it is our confession that far too often in this game of follow the leader, we go our own way. 
We say, no, I don't think I need to do it that way. No, I don't think I need to go that way. No, I don't think that's exactly what I want to do. No, I don't, I don't think so. Because that seems silly. That seems hard. That seems painful. That seems difficult. That seems scary. It doesn't line up with how I see this all playing out for me. Father, it is our confession that we want to follow ourselves, not follow Christ. So, Father, this morning I pray that you will, you will grant for us the ability to obey this command. That this morning perhaps someone will let go of the piece of driftwood, they will let go of their own boats that they are building, Father. And that they will latch on to you and they will find salvation in you and in you alone. They will hide themselves in the ark, the saving protector, Jesus Christ. And Father, I confess that I long for the day when we will be risen truly with you, resurrected, and reigning at your side. Father, may we never lose sight of these things. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.